Hello and a warm welcome to this podcast, the audio dimension of living in love and faith. This episode finds us asking how society, from post-war onwards, has navigated and adapted to the changing moral landscape of sexuality, relationships, marriage and gender. The proportion of heterosexuals who marry has been decreasing since the 1970s. Following the Marriage Same-Sex Couples Act becoming law in 2014, by 2018 there were 68,000 same-sex couples in England and Wales. But the percentage of people hoping for a permanent monogamous relationship remains high at 72%. We'll contemplate the lifestyle, landscape and the Church of England's mission in the marketplace. My name's Stuart Henderson, I'm a poet, broadcaster and songwriter. It was Oscar Wilde who observed that society exists only as a mental concept. In the real world, there are only individuals. How then does the Living in Love and Faith initiative seek to speak tenderly and without censure to a society of individuals made in the image of God, each person living their own unique and in many cases fragile stories? We've four eminent theologians and strategic thinkers gathered from members of two of the Living in Love and Faith working groups as we discuss Society, No Simple Narrative. Time to introduce our four guests drawn from both the Living in Love and Faith Coordinating Group and the Social and Biological Sciences Thematic Working Group. The Right Honourable and Right Reverend Dame Sarah Mullally has served as Bishop of London since 2018. She's the first woman to hold the post, which is the third most senior position in the Church of England. Before her ordination, she had a 35-year career in the NHS, culminating in being appointed Chief Nursing Officer for England during the Tony Blair government of 1999, a position she held for five years. The Right Reverend Dr Toby Howarth was consecrated Bishop of Bradford in 2014. He holds an MA in Islamic Studies from Birmingham University and a PhD from the Free University of Amsterdam. As a specialist in interfaith relations, Toby went on to become the Archbishop of Canterbury's Interreligious Affairs Secretary. He also retains a good working knowledge of the streets of East London, where he used to be a postman. Dr Elaine Storkey is a philosopher, sociologist, theologian and journalist who has held academic posts at King's College London, Stirling, Oxford and the Open University. A contributor for 20 years to BBC Radio 4's Thought for the Day, she's now a regular on BBC Radio Ulster's Sunday Sequence. Elaine's books include What's Right with Feminism and the equally influential Scars Across Humanity, Understanding and Overcoming Violence Against Women. Dr Joe Sadgrove is a research associate at the Centre for Religion and Public Life at Leeds University. She's an advisor to the 300-year-old Anglican Mission Agency, 
United Society Partners in the Gospel, the daughter of activist advocates for women's ordination, Joe Sagro's fervour for justice was ignited by a visit to Uganda as a teenager, where she saw at first hand the shocking gender inequities that were embedded within that society. The title of this podcast is Society, No Simple Narrative. How do you respond, all of you respond, to that extraordinary challenge, really? Toby Howarth. I am so grateful for LLF in this because I find myself engaging with young people, old people, people with all sorts of extraordinary stories and issues um, also around sexuality and gender. And sometimes it just, to be honest, feels too difficult and I just don't want to go there. And I'm a bishop and it's too hard and so I don't. And actually... Go, being forced to go there because I've been on the group and now having a chapter which deals with it and gives me some of even just simply there's some definitions and some broad brush explanations of what's going on. I have found extraordinarily helpful because at the end of the day, God still speaks into our lives and still has something to say. And that something is good news. And if we are too scared, we can't say the good news and we can't find the good news in there. But the good news is there. And I feel like this chapter and I hope this podcast is going to enable us to get to a place which otherwise maybe we've been running away from. Joe Sagro? Um, I came into um, LLF, into the Social and Biological Sciences Group, um, which was a very male group, apart from Bishop Sarah and uh, one other woman there. And it was quite a shock to me. I'd come out of a geography department of a university at the time, and all my work on sexuality had been done within the social sciences. And here I was in this this very kind of different conversation. And I think the thing that I really was keen to bring from a social sciences perspective is that sex is never just about bodies. It's always about power. And there was a very body to body conversation going on in that in that group. And let's think about how questions of power relating to sex can be put alongside other questions of power. So when we talk about power, we talk about gender, we talk about ethnicity, we talk about age. If the church puts these issues alongside each other, then it can have a much more dynamic conversation. Elaine Storkey. I've been on General Synod for 28 years until they finally let me out for good behaviour. Um, and uh, then I was, and I decided not to stand again precisely because I thought it's going to be five years of sex. Can I take it? Um, and decided <laughs> I couldn't, so came off Synod. Um, and then lo and behold, I was asked to come on to LLF. Well, it wasn't called LLF then. And I suddenly found myself drawn into the whole process. And I, I think it's been a wonderful process in, in many, many ways because it does uh, make us reflect on what we experience as people in society. And my experience of people in society is that we are incredibly diverse as a population, even in the UK. But there is something about our humanness, our humanness that is fundamental and which we all share. And it's actually how that the diversity of expression of our humanness pans out uh, is what we've been looking at in the whole area of sexuality and families and relationships and so on. And it's been a pleasure to do it. And Sarah, was it all an enormous challenge for you? Uh, I've always said that uh, LLF uh, isn't about knowledge, it's about wisdom, you know, the wisdom of God that's more precious than rubies. Uh, and wisdom is 
only comes through discernment and abiding in God. So for me, the process has been about abiding in God. And it's been about trying to find that space where you get the interplay of scripture, tradition and reason. Uh, and for that to happen, there's had to be a safe space. Uh, so it's both understanding what we mean by uh, scripture, tradition and reason and of reason for me being uh, the science uh, and allowing those three to work together. Uh, and in, in often in, in services that I undertake, whether licensing or, or ordinations, uh, we say that we're there to proclaim uh, the gospel afresh in this generation. Uh, and to be able to proclaim the gospel, we need to understand this generation. Uh, so something for me about LLF has been listening to the generation, about listening to the wisdom of God uh, and to discern uh, where maybe he is moving in the future. A recent British social attitude survey discovered that 74% of people considered premarital sex to be acceptable, that figure rising to 93% amongst those who identify as non-religious. Sarah Mullally, how difficult is it for the church to be inclusive towards people who live and think differently in matters of sexual morality? I think I would hope that the church uh, is fundamentally pastoral. Uh, so I would hope that we are welcoming to all. Uh, and the reality is that we don't often get onto our sexual activity uh, on a first encounter. Uh, it is fair to say that uh, the Christian faith, along with other religions, will have a more traditional view of sexual activity. But I would hope that the church is welcoming to all to all in that way. Um, it is fair to say that those that, for example, do not agree with the uh, a stance of the church around sexuality uh, often feel that they are not welcomed because we uh, fundamentally have a different different view. Uh, and I would hope that li the living in love and faith material uh, enables us to have uh, uh, open dialogue. How do you reconcile that emphatic teaching the church would say necessary teaching about matters of sexual morality and people who come, come to it from a completely different experience. Toby Howarth. It may be the case that, uh, that a lot of people outside of the church think that uh, the church's uh, stance on premarital sex is just out of touch. But I think there are many people who would recognise that a relationship in a place of covenanted love is a really good place to be. And I think you mentioned uh, earlier in the podcast just how many people would love to be married and see it as an ideal because actually that's where they know that they will be able to express themselves and able to be themselves. And I would hope that we can let people know that when we say as a church that actually we want sex to be in that in, in the context of that kind of relationship, that that's what we're talking about. Coming back to you, Sarah, the, the LLF book observes that there is a universal assumption that sex is necessary for a fulfilled life. In the face of that, what do you say to those who choose to practice the Jesus model of celibacy? I think that the, um, the living in love and faith material looks at a whole range of relationships. I think that... Um, 
you know, I think what we what um, and by that I mean it also talks about singleness. Uh, you know, there are there are a whole range of people uh, who, for whatever reasons, are not in sexual relationships. That may also be those that are married, um, and there are people that are single. Uh, and I think the book tries to look at, uh, in a sense. How, what it is to be human, recognising that we all have our, our different stories. Uh, and I think there's much more uh, of richness in that than, uh, than purely looking at uh, sexual fulfilment. And I, I, I would agree with that. And I think we have developed a theology of persons in relationship. So we do see all relationships as important. And if you start with this as your philosophical grounding of who we are as human persons, rather than the individualism that we get from the Enlightenment, then you do recognise that we all have very significant relationships. Some of them are sexual relationships, as in marriage, and, and some are friendship relationships, but there are also neighbour relationships. There are relationships within the church, there are work relationships, and all of these are significant in human life, and they all add to our, our humanness, and, we, and they're all normatively structured. There are principles to all of these relationships which we uphold. So it's not this narrow kind of um, band of relationships that the church has bothered about, it's the whole lot. Joe Sagrove. I think one of the other interesting challenges that the younger generation pose to the older members of the Church of England, certainly, in relation to this idea about the individual, is what we see as very high levels of volunteerism. Um, we see it under COVID-19, but we saw it before COVID-19. I've been working on a project looking at homeless volunteers in a Christian project in Leeds. And when I interview young volunteers, their sense of connectedness, their sense of social justice, and these are not people in the church, these are not Christians, they're they're articulating that they are not Christians, but they have this huge sense of responsibility to each other, responsibility to their communities and responsibility to those who are vulnerable. And I think that this, this idea of the individual as handed down by the Enlightenment that the kind of frames this discussion at the outset is it, it's in a way it, it doesn't speak to where many young people in our society are. It doesn't speak to where the church is either, I don't think. Where do you think then that that group you refer to, where, where are they picking? up the the relationship models from it's a really interesting question um i think that a lot that i mean there is a connection with a kind of family model of uh, of, of neighborly concern so i think that the idea that this is somehow the preserve of the church or the preserve of religious institutions and organizations it, it there's a much broader sense of kind of communal morality than that and i think that raises a really interesting question Now, if we turn to the opening verses of the Gospel of Matthew, we find a sequential list of names, beginning with Abraham and ending with Jesus, 42 generations in all, a human lineage naming the branches of Christ's family tree. In effect, it's a genealogy of identity, a bloodline of belonging. Toby Howarth, nowadays identity is clearly a complex brew of nationality, ethnicity, class, fixed or fluid biology, emotional makeup, and so on, creating a person's voice from the depths. Has our understanding of identity changed in recent decades, do you think? I think the wonderful thing about that genealogy in Matthew that you mention is that it does, it is quite subversive. It isn't quite what people expected or possibly even liked. It includes people like Tamar. It includes people like Ruth. It, 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 it includes people 
um, who don't quite fit the narrative that people maybe would have liked. Um, you know, Ruth is an economic migrant. Um, she she would have had a hard time in many many countries today. And I think that points us to the resources in the Bible, which actually question this whole um, assumption that, uh, that that identity is something pure. Actually, um, the stories, uh, many of the stories in the Hebrew Bible, get slightly under the surface of the of the the easy assumptions um, about somebody's identity and point to something a little bit deeper. And I think that's one of the really wonderful things that um, that is coming out today as people find different ways of talking about their sexual identity, particularly. Um, it's about saying, actually, we are all different. We all have different stories and we need to be able to explore and also celebrate these stories um, as well as acknowledging a lot of pain that goes on with these stories. Sarah Mullally. You know, Toby talks about identity. And for me, you know, identity is the sense of who I am. And particularly for me, it's a sense of who I am in God. And I'm very conscious that, um, you know, people will project onto me who 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 they expect me to be. So something for me has always been about my rootedness as in God, because that's where my identity comes from as a child beloved of him. Uh, and Toby rightly talks about that subversive list in Matthew, which contained two women that, that are slightly on, on, the, on the edge, really, and you know, in a sense of way. Uh, and I do think, therefore, that is subversive about who our identity is. Uh, and I am conscious that, you know, whenever I confirm uh, individuals when they come and they want to affirm their faith. I use words from Isaiah that says, God has called you by name and has made you his own. And that sense of uh, of being children beloved of God. And of course, for me, there's a sense in which I want to live out that calling and I take, um, you know, and, and therefore that's why I study the Bible to understand that the, the, the life that, that God would uh, call me into. But it is really important for us to know that as that for me, my identity uh, is, uh, is in God. If the levels of complexity defy simple explanations, as you've been underlining, how would you advise then a Bible study home group wanting to understand this otherness, but not really knowing how to start? I do think that if you're going to tackle some of the more challenging issues, better to start with knowing that the Bible study is a safe place to do that uh, and therefore doing some work on, on how that group works before going into the issue of sexual identity. Uh, and, and so that's where my encouragement would be, is start on how the group is working and how safe it is and how can people be honest about their story. Well, very often stories emerged in relation to stories that you're hearing so for example I have a PhD student who's now got her doctorate um, and she was looking at the um, attitude towards uh, the church from prostitutes in Addis Ababa and she decided inevitably to do this through bible readings or bible studies and um, so she had to do it through translation but she got a bunch of women who were working in prostitution together each time and they went through bible stories in the hebrew scriptures and in the new testament and bit by bit they began to identify themselves with people in the hebrew scriptures of course they were bowled over by the story of rahab and found that not only was she a prostitute she was also a role model for the new testament and so but that unpicks things it actually um, both excites people when they see their story 
stories being told in the scriptures themselves uh, and it gives them the freedom of sharing a lot more of their own stories and then learning from the scriptures. Toby? I spend quite a lot of time talking about our identity as a small bit of the big picture of God's salvation history. So I think it's really important that we see ourselves um, as part of that whole trajectory of, of scripture. So we are... Um, we are people who have been through, as it were, slavery, and we are um, we're redeemed. We're brought into a new place. We're part of a new people. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we're a new creation. And to say to people, you can kind of relax into, um, into this big picture of, of being part of God's wonderful redeeming story um, and bring your picture into that and know that you have a place in that and that that picture itself in the Bible is a lot more complicated and has a lot more room for you than you may have thought. Joe? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about how do we even talk about sex at all, really? Um, certainly a Bible study is not a good way to do that, I would suggest. I mean, I, I've worked with groups um, from different parts of the Anglican Communion to trying to bring groups from very different contexts together to have in the end a conversation about difference um, of which sexuality perceptions on sexuality are one thing um, and I remember watching a group of uh, people from Hong Kong Toronto and Jamaica really go to Toronto this was part of the Anglican Communion's continuing in Darba initiative go to Toronto have the kind of sexuality question pushed right in front of their faces the and the, for the Jamaicans in particular this was extremely traumatizing so going into a conversation and talking about the very thing that is likely to cause pain definitely not a good idea but over a course of months the, the group managed to talk about enough other stuff to find commonality to find things that they could identify around that by the end of the conversation which happened months later in Jamaica they were able to say you hurt us. We didn't understand what you were talking about. When we said the words of the Eucharist, we couldn't understand how we were saying the same words, but meant completely different things by them. That's how the certainly the Jamaican group had felt. By the end, they had built up a trust, and not just a trust, but a process within the group where they could communicate with each other and trust each other enough to say, we recognise you as brothers and sisters and that this is something that we are working on together. And that then you can bring in a scriptural story as another way of creating a third space within that space, a kind of outside of everybody, through which experiences can be projected onto and talked through. And I think that's an extremely complicated thing to do. Are, are you suggesting then that that kind of trust, that deep level of trust, must start with conflict? I think conflict is inevitable and I think we have to be okay with that. I think the trouble with this conversation is that the vocal parties are always the fringe parties. So you've got LGBTIQ activists on one hand and you've got people on the other side who, who are articulating in a very different way. And they really do have very different ways of thinking about identity and particularly sexual identity. And then you have people in the middle who, who kind of get ignored in this conversation. And I think if you have enough people across that spectrum and enough people in the middle to help mediate and communicate the points from the edges into something collective, it can, it can work. 
According to some of the LLF research, the millennial generation mixes friendship with sex in a way we haven't seen before. Friends with benefits or erotic friendships aren't necessarily bound by the rules of sexual engagement and ideas of romance or fidelity. Elaine Storkey, from a sociological perspective, what are the dynamics at play here in what many might still consider pretty transient exchanges? I think several things. Um, first of all, there's a sort of sense that sex is now part of leisure rather than part of commitment or um, or any any sort of long-term relationship. And so, um, and it's, it's erotic, it's exciting, it's stimulating. And so therefore, if there's another person who is willing to enter into the same leisure pursuit as yourself and your friends, and there's no holes barred, and there's no kind of commitment for the future, why not do it? And I think that mentality has really kind of started to grip a lot of people. It's always presented as a mutual agreement and, and a mutual benefit. But I've talked to people who haven't found it that way. have said, well, yeah, I, it wouldn't have been my preference, but it was better than nothing. Um, and therefore I went into this as a, a form of relationship. I think at the end, splitting sex off from um, intimacy, which is committed and truthful and lifelong, and where there's... A, Personal self-sacrifice, uh, mutual self-sacrifice of the relationship is always a dangerous thing because it cheapens the language. But if that sort of conduct then becomes beyond question, i.e. a case of what's the problem, how can the biblical instruction to be holy in all your ways, quoting First Peter, to be consecrated to God, to be self-disciplined, how can that be beneficially taught in such a zeitgeist, a spirit of the time? Well, you're right. I mean, that question, Stuart, is so important. It's precisely um, why we are so anxious about this behaviour kind of being, um, being presented as normal and being presented as, as um, a way forward for people in the 21st century. Um, those things can't be taught. But, but to a certain extent, human, human behavior and human psyche and human needs and human love are on our side. Because I've also observed that sooner or later, this so-called no holds barred transient um, relationship with benefits, i.e. sex, without any kind of commitment, um, has its own qualms. And so the, the jealousy can be built in quite quickly, a sense of possessiveness. But now he's having it off with somebody else. Did I want that? No, I didn't actually want that. Toby Howarth. I think the whole Me Too movement has just shown that an assumption that a casual sexual encounter is all right often has hidden power dynamics and hidden dangers, which we are beginning now to recognise. So I think there is, um, as Elaine was saying, there's something um, which is not coming from necessarily Christian morality, but is coming from within this whole social situation, which we can um, speak into as Christians and say, yes, um, the Bible does talk about power in terms of um, sexual relationship. And there's, um, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of richness to the biblical and to the theological um, tradition of the church to talk about that. Joe? I think we have to look at 
you know, the ways that men and women are treated differently in relation to sex. And it's something that we haven't talked about. And it's also something that we don't talk about when we talk about marriage in the Church of England. And I've brought it up again and again and again, that for men and for women, marriage is different. For men and for women, sex is different. I mean, okay, not, I don't want to generalise hugely, but the evidence suggests that we have different experiences of these things. And a lot has been made around women wanting permanent relationships while men don't and polygamous traits and, you know, other parts of the world where men are able to have multiple partners and uh, and women are not. Sarah Mullally. Well, I, I, I mean, I go, um, you know, the other piece of uh, research shows us that, um, you know, 48% of women want a monogamous, monogamous relationship and 40% of men do. So, so the fact is, um, there is still a desire for uh, monogamous relationships out there. Uh, and maybe one of the challenges for us as a church is around how we uh, you know, encourage people to see what contributes to helping uh, those relationships to be good. Uh, you, you know, recently going online, HTB put their marriage preparation course online. And from what they normally have, 18, they had 100 inquiries. Uh, so there is still uh, a desire. HTB, uh, sorry, HTB as a Holy Trinity problem. Yeah. Um, so there is this desire to see how you can make a relationship work. Uh, and, and maybe the role for the church is to to share in that learning around how do we help uh, one another and each other to, to live in those types of relationships. And I think often we need to take our cue from those younger people and especially young men who have decided that either they want to be celibate before they get married or that they want to have a monogamous relationship and not splinter into these various other relationships. I mean, I, there's an interesting story that of a, of a young man who was part of a church group. Um, it was at university and there was a big kind of uh, performance and he joined the drama club. They had a wonderful series of performances which everybody turned up to and it, it was a, a great success. After the final performance, they all got together and he suddenly realised in his own words that this was it, this was the coupling up. And, uh, and they started to play games where you had to um, name something that nobody else in the room would have done. And if they hadn't done it, they bought you a pint of beer. Um, and it was all about sex. So somebody had had sex with three people at once. Uh, somebody else had had sex in a lift. Somebody else had had sex whilst doing the ironing. And by the time it got to this young man, he was sweating like mad and he was terrified. And eventually he had to say, well, I've never had sex with anybody anywhere. And of course, he got 24 pints of beer. Um, but the interesting, <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing was that for all of that way in which he'd been in that drama group and he tried, it, he tried to share his Christian faith and then got nowhere. Now there was one question they all wanted to ask him. Why? The Living in Love and Faith research into changing patterns in relationships, sex, gender and identity has concentrated its scrutiny to the UK. Joe Sagrove, as someone who's researched the enormous changes elsewhere in the world, what can the, the global communities teach us about being inclusive here? Certainly in my research in Uganda, and I've done quite a bit of work in Uganda, looking at HIV and issues around sexuality... The idea of somebody coming out and being saying, I'm a lesbian, I'm gay, I'm trans, it's changing now, but certainly 20 years ago, 
that would just never have happened. Now, that did not have anything to do with what people might be doing in private. People would be having sex with each other. They would be having marriages with some people, sexual partners outside of that. In church, they were doing one thing. At home, they were doing another. And there's a very long and complicated history there of missionaries imposing particular ways of thinking about sex and bodies on populations who have completely different ways of thinking about their bodies. I think that what can be read very often as exclusion is actually part of a kind of dynamic between a Western way of thinking about something that then gets sent out, imposed on other worldviews that doesn't make sense, and then kind of comes back. So we see homophobias emerging in other parts of the world, which only really exist because the, the Western kind of human rights framework has set up the way that we're having the conversation. You made the point in a Church Times article, going back to March 2018, about the need for the church as a mission agency to share its commonalities. Is this what the Church of England is doing through the LLF vision? For me, sitting on LLF, one of the things that has, and having done a lot of communion-wide work, one of the things that has really troubled me is how the Church of England thinks of itself as both the Church of England and as a member of the Anglican Communion in a way that any other province might think of itself as a member of the Anglican Communion. And I have found that tension to run throughout. The Archbishop of Canterbury's role is a dual role. It is the head of the Church of England and it is primus and pares within the communion-wide context. And I think that that really has kind of hamstrung the Church of England a little bit in dealing with this because the Church of England is anticipating a lot what, the, what is going to come back from the communion? Sarah, do you have a, a response to that? I always think we have a huge amount um, to learn from other countries. You know, our, our risk is that we do become a little island. And I think you see it working out in lots of ways. So we ought to be open uh, to learning from the breadth of the Anglican communion. Within the Diocese of London, we have a range of views on, on issues of human sexuality, which is why we're, we, we're exploring this work. So even within the Diocese of London, you know, we would have that range of views uh, and uh, and those that would disagree with each other. And, and I do think that LLF is here about trying to create some uh, environment in which those conversations can happen. I think it's really important that we begin in our relationships with um, our fellow churches in the Anglican Communion and, and more widely with the basis that we are the body of Christ and that we need to listen to one another and be open to challenges of one another. One of the ways I think um, I'm, I'm quite disturbed at is how particularly it's kind of the, the culture wars of America and, and to a certain extent this country are exported and so that in some ways we are picking up battles in other parts of the world which actually aren't kind of indigenous or, 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 or they're framed in a particular way and often because there's quite a lot of money involved in terms of aid and, uh, and, and support for, for churches in the, in the Leeds Diocese we've got links with churches all over the world including um, southwestern Virginia um, from the Episcopal Church in the States um, Sudan uh, and, and Tanzania and when we as bishops and others have got together to talk about issues including about sex it has been so important to be sharing our stories so that we're not just butting heads on issues of kind of principle but we're understanding where those issues come from so I, I think story you know, to go right back to the beginning of this podcast is so important. It's when we when we hear where we're coming from, and that's what we've tried to do in terms of films, in terms of um, hearing different people's stories in the LLF process. That enables us to hear one another's positions in a different way. 
The experience of coronavirus, life under lockdown, has, has changed many people's ideas about the society we live in and our behaviour towards each other. What advice do you think LLF has to give to us in perhaps finding a new way forward? I think one of the one of the great things that is happening is that it's forced us to revalue who we think is important. I mean, so we we clap for people who a few months ago we didn't want to let into the country and who are often the lowest paid in our society. And I think that whole process of revaluing and rehearing people's voices and saying, actually, these are people who matter, who are part of us, whose experience we need to listen to, is all part of our living in love and faith bigger, bigger project. Elaine. Oh, I would agree with Toby entirely. It raises questions as to what it's all about. You know, what's the point of life? That's been asked to me so many times during this lockdown. And then relationships, when you can't see your grandchildren, you can't see the people you love, um, and then you've been bickering with relatives and so on, but now you can't see them. And I think it does concentrate the mind. It helps us to understand how vital people are, how precious they are, what it is to be human in God's image, and how we need each other desperately. And also how we need touch. We need intimacy. We need people to hug us. I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful I've got a husband um, and we can carry on hugging one another and having sex and all the rest of it. But I really, I really grieve for those who are now skin hungry, enclosed within their own flats and not able to be touched and loved by anyone. Joe Sagrove? The thing for me about being on LLF has been about representing kind of sexuality is about bodies but also is about power. And I think that COVID, like any disease pandemic, raises all kinds of questions, not only about bodies and touch and connectedness. And we see that through the high levels of volunteering, through people helping their neighbours and all the kind of mutual aid groups that have sprung up. But on the other thing, I think that, you know, diseases always expose inequalities and questions of power. And I think it's very clear that the kind of health inequalities that we've been working with for a long time um, uh, you know, are writ large in, in terms of who's dying in this. So I think that there are two things. I think there are things about bodies, connectedness and touch and support and help. And there are real questions of power that need to be structurally addressed and that, and that we have to have a role in that too. Sarah Mullally. For me, the final thing is it has been a reminder to me how often we see things through our own lens uh, and often our powerful lens. Uh, so, for example, you know, the church was very hesitant to go online. Uh, within a space of a week, we had, uh, you know, uh, almost 10,000 churches go online. Uh, and those who have been, um, you know, bound to their home had longed to have online church. Uh, we did not do it for them, but we did it for COVID-19. Uh, and so that for me has shown that w we still see things through our own lens uh, and operate our own powers. And I think that COVID-19 challenges us to see things through other people's eyes. And maybe we should do things uh, in a sense before another pandemic makes us do it. Thank you for listening to this podcast. My thanks to Sarah Mullally, Toby Howarth, Elaine Storkey and Joe Sadgrove. We look forward to you joining us in the future. And if you can, then please rate or review this podcast and spread the word about living in love and faith. You'll find further related material at churchofengland.org forward slash LLF. Goodbye and thanks very much for listening.